Welcome to the showcase. This is Fergus in Chicago. Diageo is a brand that employs planners internally. They work alongside internal brand teams and they in turn work alongside the agencies. And this allows the clients to come to the table with more fully formed initial ideas and strategic hypotheses. And this is what happened when a new client arrived to lead the Smirnoff brand. Now, 72 and Sunny in New York had had the business for four years and had launched a terrific campaign that was centered around the theme of social inclusion. It positioned Smirnoff as the brand that moves all of us to be more inclusive. It was in part a counterbalance to the pretentiousness that had been building in the vodka category with super premium vodka brands. Smirnoff, being the world's leading selling vodka, uh, was not only popular, but it was affordable. So as part of the social inclusion campaign, they expressed this theme wonderfully with the line, exclusively for everyone. In addition to being a counterbalance to pretension, it was also a cultural signal of inclusivity and equality. Lines like, good times are more fun when everyone's included, and only the best for everyone, were wonderful expressions of this direction. However, as the campaign rolled out over time, translating inclusivity in countries and cultures around the world became more challenging and limited the scope of the uh, campaign. In other words, equality is not necessarily present in cultures around the world, and therefore the brand had to have sort of split personality uh, positionings depending on where it was uh, marketing. Um, All of this led to the need for a new direction and for it to be led by a new client. So this episode charts the new direction as told by the client, Stephen O'Kelly, his SVP, Global Brand Director for Diageo and the Smirnoff business, and 72 and Sunny's key planner on the business, Tim Jones, who's their Executive Strategy Director in New York. So this is the story of Smirnoff, the brand that subverts the ordinary. Enjoy. So welcome, welcome Stephen and welcome Tim. It's just awesome to have uh, to have a, an Irishman on the uh, show, and then also to have an Englishman who's in San Diego right now. So, thanks for coming on. It's my pleasure. Uh, delighted to be able to join the conversation and to meet you, Fergus. Yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah, it's, it's terrific. So you'll you'll know you'll obviously will know the distinctions between who's talking because the Irishman is Stephen, and uh, so we'll be able to distinguish <laughs> between them. So Stephen and I right, well, both I, grew I, up I in Dublin. I won't overwreck it too much. Stephen, yeah, yeah, try that. That'd be funny. <laughs> so Stephen grew up in in Dublin, and literally, um, ironically, grew up just miles away from where I grew up. So we both uh, are right. familiar with the layout of the uh, of the great uh, county of Dublin. So you're back there, Stephen, just during uh, just during the pandemic. You're, are you typically based in New York? Yeah, so the role is based in uh, New York, and actually I joined in October 2018. Uh, so it'll be two years, um, I guess, at the end of this month. <clears throat> and oh, wow. uh, yeah, it's been a pretty uh, exciting ride uh, working with Tim and the folk at uh, 72 and Sunny. Uh, yeah, a very intense but very exciting uh, journey. But yes, I relocated back here um, at the 1st of April, really just because of the COVID, I guess, context um, in New York and my family were all back here. So they were getting 
very stressed looking at news broadcasts etc so yeah i just came back here you know and um hopefully we'll be back kind of on on us um shores very very soon but you're you're uh, you're a diageo uh, veteran right you've been around there for many many <laughs> years right yeah, no, I, I, I joined Diageo as a graduate, actually, <clears throat> you know, uh, not as a child prodigy, uh, but uh, yeah, so <laughs> I, I studied uh, in UCD, actually, uh, I studied law, um, is my background, um, but I we, we did some marketing modules, actually, as part of um, our training, and I, it, it, I just got the marketing bug, it just bit me, you know, and I loved the fact that there was a big creative side to it, but again, language is really important, it was strategic, you know, so it really kind of ticked all the boxes for me. So um, I joined uh, Diageo or Guinness PLC as it was back then um, <clears throat> as a summer student, believe it or not, you know, and did a few months there and they asked me to join the graduate program. Um, so I did that, worked in London for three years um, in their graduate scheme and then kind of back to Ireland and worked on lots of fab um, Irish bands like Bailey's and Guinness and Hot Lager. Um, you know, so a lot of beer kind of work, uh, worked on the global brand team for Bailey's. Uh, probably one of my most favorite roles actually was marketing director for Guinness uh, in Europe, uh, which as an Irish man, you can understand how proud that makes you feel to kind of be able to work, you know, on a brand, kind of an iconic Irish band like that. Um, and then went to East Africa. Yeah, I was based in Nairobi, uh, so did just over two years there as the group marketing director. And that takes me to uh, my current role based in New York, you know, so it's been about 20 years, but it has flown uh, for sure. Jesus, I feel so inadequate after hearing that basic uh, summary of a resume. That's pretty impressive, man. Tim hasn't even started yet. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just got on a plane and flew to the US and that's pretty much been off. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so did Tim, Tim, uh, you came, you, you worked with, with mother at one time, right? Or am I getting that wrong? Um, no, that's wrong. <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, uh, good my, start there, Fergus. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, it was a BBH maybe. It was, some, it was it somewhere was brilliant. It was, yeah, well, my career started at Ogilvy um, as, as a graduate trainee there. Um, yeah, I actually started as an account person for a couple of years. Then realized I was um, had a, a combination of poor organization but strategic insights. I was gently pushed by the organization towards strategy. So uh, I kind of appreciated that and will always, always appreciate them for that. Um, and then eventually moved to BBH London where I kind of led the strategy for Axe globally for a number of years as well as nice. um, Virgin Media and a few other local clients. And then I joined Semi2 and Sunny in, in 2014 as part of the founding team of Semi2 and Sunny New York. So there are less than 10 of us when I joined. And have been part of that agency, you know, ever since and helped grow it into the office that it is today. And actually Diageo and Smirnoff were a founding client. Um, no so way. that was the, yeah, that was the client we, uh, we opened the office for. And uh, it's always got a, uh, a very, um, you know, always very close to our heart as a result. So um, we've had that client for the whole six years now. It's been through many different iterations, but this is definitely the, the most exciting, both strategically and creatively and the most effective as well. So we're so we're going to talk we're going to talk all things sort of Smirnoff, but uh, as we get into this, uh, but I'd love to start off just by getting sort of a a sense of the category. Can you guys uh, maybe Stephen start us off? Can you tell us yeah. about the overall spirits category? What's what's hot right now? What's sort of uh, weakened or cooled off in terms of the category? Yeah. 
What's going on? I mean, it's yeah. I mean, it's very dynamic, um, as you can imagine. It has been very dynamic anyway. But obviously, with um, our our global pandemic kind of context, um, even more so. So it like you know, so this conversation could be out of date by the time we finish this conversation <laughs> yeah. in yeah, terms yeah, of what's yeah. hot now. But let me give you kind of kind of a, a bit of a backdrop in terms of the trends that we've been kind of seeing. So in terms of hot, um, I think um, globally we're seeing categories that kind of really tap into kind of high craft credentials or an element of substance, you know, or sometimes provenance, you know, or a mixture of all of those, you know, seem to be the ones that are outperforming, you know, for the last kind of uh, few years. The gin revolution, I'm sure, is something that you might be aware of, less so in the States, actually, but certainly in many, many markets, uh, you know, and continents around the world, gin has been on fire. Um, closer into the States, tequila, which is huge, you know, is very much on fire, particularly kind of at the premium, sort of like plus end and into the luxury kind of end of, of tequila. And then globally, whiskey, you know, uh, whiskey with an E in particular, um, mm-hmm. which would be like your Irish... American, I guess, you know, whiskies have also been kind of outperforming kind of the general spirits category. Um, so that's kind of the heart, you know. Um, it's interesting, actually, vodka, you know, I think overall, you know, has been cooling off um, for a while. I mean, it's a really, really big category, isn't it? You know, and you've got everything from kind of value through to kind of mainstream up to premium up into even kind of reserve, you yeah. know. But overall, the category has been cooling off, uh, probably with the exception of a, a competitor, actually, you know, called Tiso's yeah, um, in God, the U.S. What a story there, yeah. Mm. It is it is phenomenal, you know, and I have to say, I think they have done a phenomenal job in terms of what they tapped into. You know, obviously, we've had a lot of conversations about Tiso's, but we kind of go, God, they really kind of um, almost blurred, you know, between vodka and whiskey, you know, in that, you know, they brought provenance, like the Texas aspect, you know, the, the, cra- the handcrafted kind of feel. The dogs, right? They kind of brought a bit of coziness almost to a cold category. And, and, you know, it's amazing to see how consumers, you know, in the US and, you know, in other markets around the world have really reacted to that. You know, so they're kind of the outlier, I think, within vodka. And they've done a really, really good job. And then I, I wouldn't be doing my job right if I didn't talk about some of the kind of um, other big kind of growth areas, like, so for instance, Seltzers, you know, God, which, yeah, amazing. Uh, Fergus, you'll be like very familiar with because it kind of started in the States, you know, but Seltzers kind of category is now bigger than the, the total vodka category in value in the US. <laughs> Uh, which is really hard to believe because Seltzer's kind of started kind of its journey kind of over the past kind of like two years. Um, So that's enormous, enormous, enormous growth within a very, very sort of short period. And the reality is they are taking from other categories. You know, they're taking from their... Uh, maybe wine as well, but they're also attracting people away from your classic kind of like spirit brands. So how how does something like that get started? Because it just seems that from an outsider looking in, it just seems to explode. Like you look at the white claws or you look at, yeah. At, uh, at, at others, it just seems to it just seemed to just come on the market. I, you know, I think back to the Mike's Hard yeah. Lemonades of the day, and those yeah. types of different mixes, but the same basic concept. How do they just sort of come out of nowhere? Is it unex- unexpected for you guys also when these sort of these uh, when these brands come on the scene? Or are you are you aware of them far in advance? I think the trends you sort of see forming maybe from a bit further back, you know, so 
there is a kind of a trend towards kind of more holistic kind of living in general, which kind of touches probably lots of kind of, you know, CPG, not, not just kind of alcohol industry, you know, so, you know, living better, drinking better, you know, um, you know, is a trend that has been kind of, you know, talked about for a long time. Um, and obviously kind of like your vodka with soda has been long established, like kind of in the U S yeah. you know, as a low lighter, lower calorie, more holistic kind of a choice versus kind of with a tonic or a juice or whatever it is. Right. And I, I really just kind of feel that it just hit on a combination of factors, you know, which was convenience, kind of a stripped back brand kind of feel. I'm talking about White Claw here in particular, yeah. you know, it's very, very stripped back. It's got the kind of the iconicity of the kind of the surf, you know, the water. And I just think it really kind of clicked with, you know, with emerging consumer consumption patterns and needs and motivations. And they were in the right place at the right time. And it's been enormously successful for them. What do you think about that, Tim? How, what, where do you see sort of the the seltzers fitting? Is it is it new drink occasions? Is it is it guilt? Is it about refreshment? <laughs> no, I think Stephen hit it on the head there. It's just tapping into the broader trend for you know more holistic lifestyle. You can consider wellness as, as kind of part of all that, and uh, offering kind of what is actually a pretty good tasting product at such a low calorie count and no added sugar. Just definitely puts them in the right place at the right time. They also have this uh, connection to this sort of surfer subculture. So the uh, the white claw is actually the name of a certain specific type of wave. And if you look at their launch strategy, very much focused on like uh, surfing and beach locations to begin with and, and kind of expanded out from there. So super smart go-to-market strategy there too. Um, I, I just want to bring us back slightly to the vodka conversation though, because I think the, um, you know, Stephen was right to point out that um, the mega trend in spirits is is part of this craft or providence trend. And vodka has is, is always struggled to be a little bit part of that because it's best vodka is this like odorless, tasteless liquid, right? It's kind of its quality is defined by actually the absence of those kinds of markers. Right. And so the brand, the category has always struggled to really kind of like tap into this like mega trend of craft and provenance and history and heritage. And um, Tito's, as Stephen was saying, is probably the only brand that's done that successfully. But, you know, as um, as a strategist working on a vodka brand, that's one of the things you have to have an eye on, which is how can we part, be part of this conversation? If we can't be part of the uh, holistic and wellness conversation as, as the spirits brand, how can we be part of the uh, the craft and the heritage conversation? So how is quality defined in vodkas? Is it is it is it about um, purity or, or, or how would you describe it? It, it tends to be about purity, which is the world's kind of trickiest creative brief because it's like the absence of anything, right? <laughs> yeah. So if uh, if you spend five minutes Googling um, vodka commercials, there's a lot about filtration and purity. Um, but again, it's kind of like difficult to really tap into um, this whole conversation about taste and botanicals in gin, for example, or agave and tequila. And everyone wants to know the ingredients and the, the tasting notes and all those kinds of things. And vodka just doesn't really have much of that. Um, so that's kind of, I think, one of the reasons it struggles is category with the exception of Tito's. What do you think, Stephen? Yeah, I, I agree. Sometimes you kind of go, vodka is vodka is vodka. Of course, that's not like strictly true, right? You know, because there are all sorts of kind of different processes to make vodka are indeed what's the base ingredient. Is it corn? Is it maize? You know, is it... Uh, sugar cane. So there's more to it than meets the eye. But generally, you know, um, delivering a kind of an odorless, kind of tasteless 
um, you know, uh, delivery kind of and mouthfeel is seems to be what really kind of consumers are looking for. And I guess the conundrum to that, or sorry, the contrary to that would be not harsh, not having an aftertaste or kind of having a burn, exactly, you know, yeah. which some of mm. the, the cheaper ones might do because maybe they don't filter so much, you know, or the base ingredient is um, not as high quality, you know. So um, one of the kind of really interesting things about Smirnoff, you know, that goes right back to the, the kind of genesis of the brand in 1864 is that um, our founding fathers um, actually innovated the multi, wait for this, it's a mouthful, multi <laughs> uh, charcoal filtration system. And that was innovated by our, our founding father and kind of continues to this day, you know, so every single Smirnoff around the world goes through that, that particular process. And that is something that is kind of unique to us. It is interesting that in the spirits category, that vodka is probably the, the, the single spirit that is used as a blank canvas that you build upon in order to add flavor, where in all the exactly. other categories, uh, it's yeah. actually used maybe to distract from the flavor when you're mixing them in cocktails. Yeah, exactly. You know, and I think that's why vodka is so big, you know, um, you know, um, you know, Smirnoff is like the biggest premium kind of spirit in the world is because of that accessibility and versatility. And, you know, from a marketing point of view, that's very much where we put a lot of our efforts, you know, which is really tapping into kind of um, what are the local mixers, you know, what are the local cocktails, you know, that, you know, Smirnoff has innovated over the years. So there's some really famous ones, Fergus, if you think the Moscow Mule. Yeah, yeah. Very iconic, right? You know, cocktail in the US and other markets that was innovated on Smyrna first, like with the copper mug and with ginger beer, etc. And then if you go to Brazil, you've got, uh, I'm sure you know the Caipirinha, if you've been anywhere in Brazil, which is kind of the national drink, you know, which is kind of a cane-like sugar rum, and then they mix it with loads of beautiful, you know, exotic fruit, etc. They're really delicious. But actually, they innovated the Caipirosca, I think it was back in the 70s, Tim. You might correct me there. Mm -hmm. And yep. the, the whole story behind that is the Jet Set, who were discovering Rio de Janeiro and all these exotic places back in the kind of 60s and 70s, didn't want to drink the, the local cane rum. They wanted something more from home. And this is where the kind of Kaipi Rosca came, which is like literally like a Russian Kaipi, uh, where they substitute the cane um, sugar rum for for a vodka you know and this is stuff that we've kind of actually like dug out of our past and are actively kind of talking about and activating behind um at the moment so it's it's a real it's a kind of a it's a two-edged sword isn't it you know which is mm. you know people are looking for flavor and character you know but at the same time you know and you could say vodka doesn't deliver that but at the same time you can deliver that flavor and character through what you mix it with and there's just like an endless world of cocktails because i think the virtue of vodka is the mixability kind of aspect and People love to experiment, you know, with lots of different mixed drinks and different cocktails, you know, and I'm sure, Fergus, you've seen like an explosion in cocktail culture around yeah. the world and even post-COVID, right? Like people are becoming mixologists, right, at home, you know, and trying to wow their whatever wife, partner, <laughs> one friend that's allowed in right, <laughs> right. with, with their cocktail. Yeah, their Zoom friend with their cocktail making kind of skills, you know. So actually, you know, no, I don't think that's the case here. Obviously, you know, uh, if it was a single malt or something like that, it would be heresy, you know, to be doing yes. this. But it's, it's just the category just operates in a different way. And again, it's it's why vodka is so big, you know, because mm -hmm. of that 
uh, versatility. So, so it's something that we've absolutely um, embraced, you know, and there have been forays into kind of more premium vodkas, etc. you know, and, you know, in a way, really kind of people just want it pretty straightforward, you know, and, and the inspiration, I think, comes from the brands and the stories, you know, of the brand, but also the drinks inspiration, if you want to kind of coin a phrase like that, you know, that we can bring to, to people and inspire them with different cocktails. So we have yeah. a lot of strategists on here who um, struggle with global brands. They get asked by clients to, to develop a proposition uh, for a brand that's a global brand. And it's, you know, a lot of people struggle with it because sometimes it sort of causes you to fall to the lowest common denominator uh, and yes. um, in order for it to have some sort of relevancy. And then that relevancy is too thin and meaningless mm-hmm. in certain yeah. markets versus others. So my, my question for Smirnoff is, was the ask for a global brand proposition or or, and is that what you want, or do you? Or does there have to be regionality, uh, yeah. customization uh, around uh, in different markets? Yeah. Well, let me kick off, and then Tim, please come in on top of of this. So, so look, I think you know, for for any global brands, like this is always a conundrum, isn't it? For any global brands um, around the world, um, is how you strike that balance, isn't it, between a coherent global brand. Uh, but also, uh, as you say, you know, that you haven't sort of homogenized it so much uh, that it kind of becomes bland or loses kind of <clears throat> local relevance. So I think reality is this is a day to day kind of um, uh, mission, you know, is how you find that right balance. But I think, you know, you know, the goal is the goal is always a coherent global brand, I think, but with regional expressions that, uh, you know, but and it, and it is hard to do. Um, we invest a lot of time, you know, defining tram lines and codifying what must remain true as the trademark works across multiple markets, but also what can and should flex across lots of elements, you know, so positioning, your comms, liquid even, pack get up, key brand assets, all, all the kind of bits that make up a brand, you know. And, and it's interesting for me, you know, I've definitely authored, you know, some global campaigns in my career that try to do that kind of nirvana of the one big global campaign. And I've got that right and I've got that wrong, you know, definitely in my career. You know, we, I know we'll go on to talk about Smyrnaf in a while, but I think this is one occasion where we really managed to do that. Um, and certainly, you know, the brief to me when I was coming in the role is that we wanted a more unified brand uh, on Smyrnaf, that there was just too much localization change on the brand as we move from geography to geography, you know, but it is an ongoing thing. You know, I don't know, uh, Tim, if you want to talk about the culture aspects, you know, because that's a big factor uh, as well, isn't it? No, no, of course. I mean, like building a global brand for, for any category is, is, is super tricky. Um, lots of nuances there, but I think alcohol and vodka specifically brings um, some real challenges. So as we spoke about already, alcohol is this hugely culturally driven category. And drinking means really different things in different places and associations with vodka um, can vary really, really wildly, um, even down, right down to the kinds of drinks you might make with it different, uh, differ from market to market. On top of that, even things like basic things like relative price can change across each market because a lot depends on local tax laws, where's the liquor produced, what's the import tax here or there. So in some markets we're more mid-range and some markets we're we're closer to a value brand but there's a kind of um a, a huge spectrum there too and we on top of that we don't even have a consistent like occasional consumption moment 
So in some markets, we're what's called an on-trade brand, which means we're primarily sold through bars and pubs and clubs. You know, when you're when you're out and about. In other markets, we're more of an off-trade brand, which means we're you know sold through grocery stores and liquor stores and, and mainly consumed at home. So all the places that you would normally look for a kind of um, a hook to make a globally consistent brand really kind of just is, isn't there. The experience of the product is different. The culture that the product is experienced is, indif- is different. And even just like basic things like the price and positioning, it, the price positioning is different. different. So you're kind of looking for that uh, global brand story that can be flexed to local nuances, but is really rooted in um, some kind of human truth and a, and a broad creative theme that is kind of relevant everywhere, which is um, which is kind of the objective. I know, Fergus, you talked about lowest common denominator earlier. Right. I, I think it's the opposite. It's it's about going to the the kind of like the broadest, most true, most relevant thing, um, and finding the unifier in that way versus thinking about what does everyone have in common. Yeah, but I, I think that unfortunately, what what I meant by that was like you mm. you tend to end up in situations where, as a strategist, you're looking at let's say the U.S. market versus versus uh, the U.K. market, and one one idea is so extraordinarily compelling, but it's only compelling in the U.S., for example, or it's, maybe it mm. doesn't work as well, or it doesn't resonate. So there's a tendency in in the in the goal of or, or, or with the objective of getting to a compelling common denominator, something that works across regions uh, i think a lot of the time we see that 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 that, that connecting yeah. uh, that that connective mm. tissue isn't as strong as what could be deployed in a single market so you end up with something that that works but isn't really hugely compelling or isn't really a change a disruptive concept but it yeah. but it works and it tests well everybody feels good about it and that's and that's and that's an unfortunate reality for brands who want to be global uh, rather than regional. The only, yeah. I, I, I don't think that's always the case, though, to be honest, right? Because I think, to you know, what you've described there, Fergus, I would describe as not doing a good job, <laughs> you know, uh, which is the skill, you know, between the clients and the advertising agency or the innovation contacting people is that you pick out the bits that do have meaning, you know, and do you know, uh, transverse kind of geographies. But at the same time, you make very clear decisions on where you regionalize something. The key thing is it must work, you know, to best effect in every market. Um, And I know we'll we'll get into kind of the process on this particular campaign, but we, we tested very broadly. Um, on this, we tested in our four to five big markets to exactly your point, which is in each of these markets, does this global idea deliver outstanding creative? And I, I really kind of mean outstanding, beating all the norms as opposed to the trap that that you describe. And it, it has happened to all of us, which is, you know, something which is good, you know, and, you know, people around the boardroom feel feel good because kind of it strokes the corporate ego, isn't it? We've got one big idea, one joint of brands that makes us feel great, no matter how kind of uninspired the consumer might be, right? Right, right. Yeah, it's a tough thing. If you can get it right, I mean, it's phenomenal. I mean, it's almost like looking at at Samsung versus Apple, right? And it's the idea that yeah. Apple just seems to work everywhere. Magically, yep. beautifully, uh, but other brands struggle with trying to get something that's consistently compelling, uh, because there's a lot of legacy components that come with some brands and others that have a, a little bit more of a blank canvas. Yeah. But boy, when it works, it's magic. Yeah, I mean the think differently piece, 
which is kind of like the genesis really, isn't it? You know, of kind of the, the positioning of Apple is a human truth, isn't it? You know, there's nobody who's going to say, no, I don't want to think differently. No, I don't want to be imaginative, you know, even if it's a small I versus a big capital I, you know. So I think what they managed to do is kind of just really tap into a very powerful thought, but it's a very universal thought, you know, would be my my sense on that. Yeah, what do you think, Tim? No, I, I agree. It's, it's the fundamental truth that you're tapping into. And I think sometimes that truth can come from the consumer or from culture. So when we were running Axe globally, that was over 100 markets. There's a truth that um, young guys can feel like uh, either intimidated or kind of um, sometimes a little scared of women. And uh, they need a confidence boost to overcome that. That's kind of true pretty much everywhere. Yes. Um, <laughs> yes, as, as we can probably all agree. Um, and uh, or, or sometimes that truth is is more specifically located in the product or brand. You, you kind of build out from there, which is actually what we did, what we did with Smirnoff. Um, sometimes when things are so different everywhere, the, the, you, the consistent point is actually the brand, not the consumer or culture. That's where you start. Right. Right. Exactly. So let's talk. Let's talk about Smirnoff. Um, you, it's the brand has been with Seventy Two and Sunny for six years. You mentioned earlier. Mm. How would you describe the brand in advance of this campaign? Where did it sit, positioning wise, or how would you describe where where how it was perceived? Yeah, totally. So, um, well, let's just start what the, with what the position was based on and the kind of like where it led us to, um, because actually we made a few missteps along the way there. There was some uh, some really good parts of it, but some things that didn't work so well, especially given kind of where the brand needed to go to. So previously, as Stephen mentioned, um, the brand wasn't completely unified globally, but it was positioned around this thought of social inclusion. So the purpose uh, previously was that Smirnoff moves us all to be more inclusive. And this positioning was designed to take a perceived weakness, which was the brand's scale and lack of differentiation, and flip that into strength by connecting this idea of scale to uh, to this like the thought of inclusion, which of course was incredibly culturally resonant and still is now. Yeah, and so brilliant. that's what. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, well, I mean, we thought so at the time too, but um, it led <laughs> to a few issues. Um, so it did lead to some declining differentiation. Um, because as more brands moved into that space, um, it became kind of very commonplace. Now, when we originally moved Smirnoff into that inclusive space, we were really the the only really big mainstream brand who were kind of communicating actively there. And then kind of fast forward a few years, and um, I think it probably hit peak inclusion with the uh, the Pepsi um, work uh, that we kind of all remember. Yeah. Um, uh, Is it the Kylie and- Jenner work? Exactly, yeah. Um, and I think uh, that space became very crowded, so it's hard to stand out. Um, it also became really difficult to build that global consistency. Um, we've spoken a lot about all the different um, ways the brand is perceived already, just due to the category. Um, but inclusion, actually, is just another layer on that. So inclusion obviously means something really, really different everywhere, too. I mean, um, to be part of gay pride in New York isn't that distinctive, although we should, as brands, we should definitely support those kinds of causes, but it's almost like a price of entry now in the US to kind of like have an inclusive part to your DNA. Uh, there are other countries where like very sadly, and like it, it's actually even illegal to be gay. So that's just one kind of a spectrum of inclusion and how it's different across different markets. So it became really difficult to build a consistent brand around this theme of inclusion. 
Um, and then also, you know, the the need for ongoing premiumization uh, for the brand that was tricky too because inclusion isn't a natural fit as you're trying to premiumize something because um, as you increase the price of something, technically you are kind of like excluding some people as you go. So for all those kinds of reasons that, um, and we're in a stage where we're starting to lose share in key battlegrounds um, uh, and also losing distinctivity and differentiation uh, and premiumness, which was, I think, the moment that Stephen came in. So Stephen, you you came in and, and so what was, I'm assuming you had a, a briefing from inside of Diageo and inside Smirnoff. Um, <laughs> what, what, was that, what was that briefing to you? And what did you face when you walked in? Yeah, yeah. So yes, I did get that briefing about two days in. Uh, to be precise, <laughs> uh, that was quite scary. I was fresh off the plane from Nairobi into New York, which involved a major temperature change. So uh, yeah, uh, it was an interesting uh, induction onto the brand. But yeah, I mean, the the briefing was kind of quite simple, really. You know, which was the brand. The performance was a bit lackluster, I guess. You know, on Smyrna for quite a few years, right? So we were kind of you know, in kind of slight decline or, you know, flat-ish really kind of um, performance for like the last 10 years. Um, And I think there was a sense in the organization that, you know, we were falling out of love with the brand, consumers were falling out of love with the brands and customers were falling out of the love of the brands. We're just really losing, you know, our, our sort of iconic status. Um, and when we kind of delved in, you know, like the different campaigns and kind of the kind of diagnostics on the brand, one of our biggest issues was distinctivity, uh, which were our distinctivity scores were just below par, you know, uh, versus our competition, but also versus other, you know, you know, brands within the Diageo uh, portfolio. And we have some fab brands in there, right? Like Guinness, Johnny Walker, Bailey's, you know, Tanqueray, you know, all shining and very vibrant and dynamic. And Smirnoff was just not um, in that place. Um, so, so on the positioning bit, I mean, on the inclusivity bit, you know, I'm really proud actually that we had that positioning and I, I think it was really bold and brave, you know, of the organization to go after that. And arguably, like it was probably a bit ahead of its time, right? You know, when, when that For campaign sure. launched. Yeah. So fresh um, when it launched. Yeah, exactly. You know, however, I remember when I worked on, on Guinness in Europe, seeing, you know, some of the kind of the ad tracking on the kind of more open campaign. And with issues on comprehension, you know, um, people sort of struggled to link, you know, such a kind of a big, meaty purpose like that back to the category, uh, if that makes sense. It felt like, you know, we were maybe overreaching ourselves a bit, you know, or that the creative at times could become a bit overly earnest. So I think there's a kind of a bit of a reality check of we're vodka, you know, um, and we have an amazing history. You know, we've stood in this inclusivity space, but let's just kind of really think about, you know, what's the kind of credible space that we can occupy, you know, um, and and from there, you know, how do we gain, how do we win the battle on distinctivity you know, within vodka which is really important right because as i said you know the worst case scenario is people go vodka is vodka is vodka you know that doesn't help us we want to be bright and distinctive and for consumers to choose us 
over you know the the competitors so i think that's kind of how i would frame kind of the the, the challenge kind of going in uh, we're a very salient brand to use a marketing term so like so people see us as important you know and we're very widely distributed we're very ubiquitous we're in pretty much every market globally but we didn't really have a distinctive point of view you know yeah yeah uh, and the inclusivity aspect just people struggled to link it to smirnoff you know so after many many years and again it was another brave decision from the organization is we decided to just kind of change our focus you know on our, our kind of positioning strategy on the brand and i know tim will probably kind of talk a bit about that and the journey that we all went on but just to say that inclusivity still exists within our brand values mm-hmm. uh, and I'm, I'm really i think that is really really important and essential however it's not kind of the brand purpose per se if you get me so it's it's in the ecosystem it's important in terms of how we show up and how we behave and we're very committed to that but is it the nucleus of the brand probably uh, less so uh, on the back of the work we've been doing the past two years. So, so Tim, you, um, there's suddenly, there's suddenly a knock on the door and you guys get together either. I'm, I'm sure there's, there's as much conversation going back and forth during this whole transition of this, of this positioning or this conversation, but, but what, is, what is sort of the, can you take us inside that sort of that meeting about uh, that we need to explore an alternative direction and then, then I'd love to hear about specifically what your team did, your planning team did to kind of explore and what they looked at for inspiration. The, you know, as Stephen mentioned, there was a, a decision at the Diageo level to, um, to change direction, but also kind of the kind of Stephen coming onto the team as well, who brought with, a very, with him a very kind of specific vision, which is really like the, the first step in the nucleus for this kind of new piece of thinking. So I definitely cannot take credit for all of that. But I think um, we kind of had a, a briefing session uh, a few weeks after Stephen started where we kind of re- we re-looked at the kind of the vision for the brand and the space we needed to move into. And uh, Stephen delivered was probably the most inspiring brief we've had to date as an agency in terms of like where did we want the brand to be. Uh, and more like what did we want people to feel in terms of how they related to this brand going forward. Uh, and that was really what Stephen and, and his team brought to the process at the very beginning. He, they really kind of set us up for success. So I'll, I'll hand back to him because that was kind of his yeah, brief. Yeah, I'd love to hear um, that. But yeah. I, I had a few weeks um, in Kenya before I moved to New York and I had some time, you know, to to think about Smirnoff, you know, and Fergus, you might relate to this, but I grew up with Smirnoff, you know, yeah. um, because it's a really big brand in Ireland and, and in the UK. Um, and I always remember, you know, uh, seeing like those through the bottle campaign. I don't know if you remember it. I do remember. I don't. I I do remember that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and I always kind of remember kind of thinking to myself, a how clever it was, but also how kind of like otherworldly and kind of subversive and kind of mischievous, you know, um, it was, you know, for for its time, right. Um, so describe you know, describe for the listeners what 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 it was, just so everybody gets rooted in it. Yeah, so basically, uh, it was a, it was kind of quite outdoor driven. You know, I think it may have been just outdoor, um, but essentially, you might get something like a picture of um, a flock of sheep. You know, and then the Smirnoff bottle would be kind of positioned quite large over the kind of the outdoor kind of piece, kind of you know, kind of from a whole bottle really, kind of standing the height of the, of, of the outdoor panel. Um, and you'd see a wolf, <laughs> uh, yeah. where 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 kind of the lens almost of the bottle kind of picked it out, you know. Uh, Interesting, um, yeah. 
yeah, and it was called Through the Bottles, <laughs> imaginatively. Uh, but it was kind of this kind of like, you know, the world of Smirnoff is a little bit mischievous and a little bit subversive and, you know, kind of like different, you know. Um, and it's funny, as part of, you know, the job before we, we came to the agency, is we, I was able to look back through kind of all of the kind of like catalogue of advertising, et cetera, et cetera, back to the years. And there is the most awesome kind of back catalogue of highly imaginative subversive is the word I use, you know, um, kind of wacky sometimes, uh, um, advertising right back, you know, um, to the 60s, you know, um, I mean, Smirnoff was a proper global brand for a long time, right? You know, yeah, um, for sure. and um, we looked at all of that and that's kind of where, you know, I kind of, what the, the thought was from your head is like, well, what's distinctive about this brand? And it kind of is that, kind of subversive, mischievous, twinkle in the eye type thing, you know, and it it's kind of it's clever, but it doesn't take itself too seriously. And I I guess I just thought that was a bit of a red thread, you know, that felt part of our history, very distinctive, very unique, you know, uh, but could also work like nowadays. So like I guess it is sometimes looking to the past, you know, to, you know, think about what the future could be about. Um, and in a way, I kind of felt we'd lost a little bit of that kind of cheeky, mischievous kind of this. As I said, you know, that the, there were open work, you know, on a bad day, like on a rainy day, could be a little bit overly earnest. Um, and that didn't feel, you know, completely true to the character of the brand over the years. Um, and that was kind of, that was really it. It was a pretty simple brief to him, I think. Um, yeah. And so what was, would... what, was the, what was the brief in a, in a sentence, Stephen? Tim might help me here because uh, it's about two years ago, but I, I think it's like fix this goddamn brand. No, I think, <laughs> <laughs> now, I, I think it was very much kind of, it, it was not a kind of like we want to talk about this. I think there was an aspect of, you know, it was a brief where we kind of actually showed a lot of the kind of um, through the bottle um, sort of creative and some of the historic creative and kind of together, I think, kind of as a team, we're kind of going like, what does this brand really stand for? You know, yeah. um, what makes it, what marks it out? What makes it special? So it wasn't the classic, you know, and it also was a pretty wide brief. If you think about it, it's kind mm -hmm. of like we need to redefine the positioning of this brand. It needs to be a campaign that can work multi-market. It needs to make Smyrnaf distinctive. We had this phrase of only Smyrnaf could, only Smyrnaf should, you know, all this kind of stuff. So we kind of coaxed our way together towards this kind of, you know, new brand purpose, essentially, you know, an insight which Tim will be able to do a really good job of. And I, I will not go there because he's the expert. Mm -hmm. But that was kind of it. And was that something that you had to sort of get buy-in from Diageo before? Because, I mean, you're obviously a very senior person, but I got to assume when you're in there for a couple of weeks that you had to get buy-off on that, on that thesis, on that hypothesis. Did you find any resistance when you did that? Yeah, well, that is, it's, it's just remarkable you say that because about, um, so two days into role, I got my briefing from the CMO of Diageo, Sil Seller, who I'm sure you know very, very well. And then about, I think, a month into role, our CEO, Ivan Menezes, um, arrived in New York and wanted to have a meeting with me, which terrified me. <laughs> 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 Frankly, you know, uh, A, I was flattered he was interested. B, I'm like, I'm, re I'm really not sure how this meeting could go. Uh, but he, he was luckily in fantastic form on a Friday. Friday afternoon, 
uh, in inner offices in Manhattan. Um, and I just took him through my thinking on like that. I thought the high points in our comms had been in the past, you know, and the, through the bottle. And he just immediately went, oh, my God, I totally agree. I really, really agree. And then we just went through other kind of bits and pieces, et cetera. But, but his enthusiasm and energy and, and just kind of support obviously gave us all huge confidence, you know, and our jobs <laughs> yeah, <laughs> to, to continue to the next stage, you know. So I was just actually kind of on reflection was very, very lucky that that meeting happened and that he really understood kind of my vision uh, and my sense of where we wanted to go with the brand. And that, you know, gave us the confidence to, to go to 72 uh, and Sunny and kind of chat through kind of the space that we felt we wanted to get into. Awesome. So Tim, you, you get this, you get this briefing. Uh, I, I got to assume that 72 and Sunny kind of was uh, uh, strongly connected emotionally to where you guys had been heading. It had been running for a couple of years. It was strong. And, and then this new concept comes along. How, how do you guys react? Of course, you want to smile in front of the client, but you're probably grimacing a little bit inside. But ha- tell us how, how um, it went. Well, you know, I think Stephen mentioned some of the, uh, the, the pressure, anxiety, and maybe even, uh, even fear he was experiencing. And I can tell you that was also being experienced on the agency side. <laughs> I'm sure. New client. You know, exactly right. New, new client. Had the, the, the business already for four or so years at that point. Um, which is a long time in the world of advertising, unfortunately. Um, and uh, a, a business and a brand that was is very, very close to our hearts. Like I said, it was the founding client of Semington Sun in New York. And uh, there's no way that we wanted to let that go uh, without a fight and giving it our, giving it our best shot. I think the, um, the thing that we could all very easily align on is uh, the data around what was and what wasn't working in the work that had gone previously. So Stephen had done a great job of summarizing that, and that was, um, you know, irrefutable. So I think we all kind of started from the same position of like we need this brand to move back into performance, and um, we have a bit of a phrase at Summit Two and Sunny, an internal one, which is um, attach your ego to the outcome, and that means you know don't get obsessed with your strategy or your ad or your script or your brief. Get obsessed with the impact in the marketplace. And if the impact in the marketplace is, is, is there, then we can all high five. And if it's not, then we can't really, not even if uh, we won awards and a few other things along the way. Um, so that's, um, we, we kind of were able to rally around that, um, that pivot uh, pretty easily. Uh, and I would say, I think there's sometimes an important step that gets missed when we talk about um, repositioning. I mean, Fergus, you, you asked what the brief was. Um, I think there's a step that comes before the brief, which is like, just what's the vision for this brand? Even before we start getting down into like, what's the product differentiator or what's the thing we want to say, or what's the kind of like the snappy one-liner. Um, and and really that's what I think Stephen and Diageo team brought to this, which was we want to recapture that kind of, um, that subversive spirit in a modern way um, and find a way to do that. Um, and there were three kind of like really clear KPIs, which are restore, sophistication, and edge, create a distinctive and ownable world, and then ultimately return smart to growth as a result of doing those things. Um, there was a snappy line that did arrive, you know, arise out of that conversation, and that was that thought of Smirnoff subverts the ordinary, um, which was still a very kind of broad space to go after creatively. Um, but that was really helpful in terms of a, a vision setting statement, and that's actually our purpose now as well. Um, but then the task became, how do we kind of translate all of that into communications? But that was, that was the vision that was set. 
So um, did you, did your group feel that there was a need to explore alternative options or was, was the whole team collectively on board with um, beginning to think about how this could uh, play out strategically? No, we were totally on board with the, the vision of subverting the ordinary. Um, and that's, you know, so broad. There's so many different ways of doing that. Um, it's very inspiring, but it doesn't necessarily lead you to one kind of communication. So we felt there was ex- an extremely large playground within that vision that we didn't need to like try and create a whole nother path. It, it was more just understanding where we could sit within that, within that world and what, what subvert the ordinary meant to Smirnoff and what it meant today. So, so with for you, Stephen, because you know it, it's great to have both client and agency on this conversation because it allows us to ask some of these questions. Which is, when you when you came in with that briefing, obviously you talked to your CMO that you had buy in. At that point, was there was there in your mind even an appetite for alternatives, or were you or were you focused on blowing this direction out? Yeah, gosh, good question. I mean, one thing I wanted to say is I think um, we had kind of declared crisis on this brand, you know, uh, between us, you know, as an agency and as a client. So De- declared crisis, is that what you said? Yeah, exactly. You okay. know, because, you know, uh, not because I'd arrived, although maybe that would cause crisis. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but because, you know, but like the performance was just not good enough in the brand. You know, the distinctivity scores were not good enough. And it's kind of like, we cannot continue to do the same thing, you know, right. and expect a different result, expect this to change, you know. So I think we're all kind of like in a crisis mindset, which really, really helped, you know. Um, but but I, I think... Um, I don't think it was just even the agency were very open. I just think that thought of subverting the ordinary and we got to a collective vision really, really quickly. And I mean, Tim, I think this is within a two-hour briefing session, right? Where yes. we yeah. just sat around the table and we just went through everything, you know, and we all just kind of came to a very similar conclusion, which we felt was really, really powerful, you know. And I do have to help check this, you know, because that rarely happens in my career. Mm. And I'm sure, Tim, <laughs> you would agree as well. Yeah. Um, but we just kind of landed on the right sweet spot and we got lucky, you know, um, you know, combined with, you know, as Tim says, like we'd done a lot of thinking, all of us, before the briefing session. And we'd gone back through the annals of the kind of, you know, advertising and what were the high points, you know, and, and because of that, it was a real conversation, you know, um, and it didn't feel like, you know, here's a kind of a new guy, you get in the block with a new vision and, oh God, you know, we're all going to have to drag ourselves down that path, you know. But again, I would kind of say that briefing session, we landed on the vision, but then it turned into, you know, a creative process, right? You know, um, um, which I'm sure Tim will kind of tell you more about, but I have to say it was one of the smoothest, most enjoyable creative processes I've ever been on uh, because we we just had such a joined up vision of where we wanted to go and we knew we had to do something really different, you know, so that urgency and that kind of appetite for change was there. Love it. That's amazing. Yeah, it it really helped to have all the right people in the room there as well. So, you know, obviously Stephen had done the work uh, with the Agio to approve this new vision. But in, in the room from the 72 and Sunny side, we had everyone who needed to be part of that decision to pivot present. So there was myself, our president, uh, who at the time, Jess Monzi, who's um, now president of Wine and Kennedy in Portland, and uh, Justine Armour, who is now CTO of Grey. 
And uh, we also had John Boyler, who's a uh, founder and um, creative co-chair of 72 and Sunny, um, kind of the kind of our, our, our kind of leader. So there's a uh, so there's a kind of um, everyone who needed to be in there to make that decision was there. And so, you know, sometimes there can be slightly, slightly awkward processes where client, Greece, planner, planner can't really agree to such a big pivot in the room because they need to consult with maybe creative partners. And maybe, you know, even someone, you know, at the a, a global agency leadership level, if you're kind of like making such a big pivot on a such an important piece of business. Um, and so we managed to streamline that whole thing by having everyone in the room at the time. And, um, you know, we, we kind of all left that feeling good and knowing that we didn't really have to consult anyone outside of, of that group to, to make that move. So tell us, tell us about why um, uh, subverting the ordinary is... A, um, a, a a credible space for Smirnoff to be versus Absolute or anybody else who's out there in vodka or in other categories. I mean, there's a big hook here. Yeah, I think as Stephen mentioned, the brand just has a really, really rich history of doing that time and time again in different ways uh, through different iterations and different campaigns and different behaviors. Um, so that, that felt true to the brand's DNA. Um, but the, the challenge was really kind of like, how do we package that up in a way that is digestible by consumers? So, um, you know, I'll, I'll walk you through a little bit of kind of our, the early stages um, process of Semi to and Sunny. So we dove, we dove really deep into the brand. And we kind of got to the core issue pretty quickly. That, that Smirnoff is this brand with 150 years of rich heritage that like literally covered the walls of Smitty and Sunny in New York, like rooms and rooms and rooms covered with kind of all the printouts of work that had been done in the past and newspaper articles and all this kind of other stuff uh, that kind of captured this heritage of the brand. But um, we quite quickly got to the point where we're like, well, none of this is in the mind of our consumers. That's the challenge. And in fact, even previous versions of the brand positioning were using truths that are on that wall but the, the truths never made it off the wall and into the work and into the minds of the consumers. That was kind of the big challenge. And, and what really, really kind of stuck with us is that we were kind of being outcrafted, outstoried, and outheritaged, if that's a word, uh, by brands that have only been around for like 10 years, maybe. And that was kind of a travesty in our minds. We've been around for 150 years and had this crazy story. And, um, and, and no one really knew about it or connected with it. So that became kind of like the problem that we needed to solve. As we were kind of thinking a bit about that, um, we, you know, we talked about Smirnoff being the, the world's largest vodka, right? So it's kind of famous in a way. And um, the question we asked ourselves, both strategically and creatively, is is kind of like, what did it take to become the world's number one vodka? Um, we thought that would be a good question to ask. So we delved deeply into the founding myth of Smirnoff and everything it's been through. What's really interesting is if you think about the founding myth of most spirits brands, or maybe brands in general, but definitely spirits brands, they're they're pretty pious. Um, they're stories of like good old family men striving to like blend the perfects, you know, blend of whiskey or kind of whatever the the Johnny Walkers or the Arthur Guinnesses, you know, that that's kind of like the founding stories of those brands, and that's definitely where those brands should be. But that is a, a bit of a convention in the spirits category um, or alcohol category in general. Um, and what was interesting is the more we dug into Smirnoff's history, the more we learned that Smirnoff was actually in a, a morally questionable brand with a very dubious past. Um, <laughs> the, <laughs> the, uh, as we, you know, there's, uh, there's actually you mean a interesting, interesting. <laughs> interesting. Yeah. <laughs> historically, not uh, you know, historically, yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's actually um, 
for people who are really interested in going down, down the rabbit hole, there's a book called Killing a Vodka, which is a story of Smirnoff. It's actually published. It's out there. You can buy it on Amazon. Um, nothing, can, nothing to do with the Azure, as far as I know. But, um, but you know, there's, there's books written about this brand because people are interested in it because the story is so crazy. Um, we actually summarized the story into a kind of a, a neatly written paragraph, which really served as um, really the beginning of the creative process, which I, I can read to you now if that's helpful. Please. It's been snatched, stashed, traded in secret, concealed, used as a barter, captured, imprisoned, exiled, hidden, fled from the Russian government, resurrected in Istanbul, brought down, resurrected in France, indebted, resurrected in Poland, prohibited, resurrected in America, disguised. Ours is a vodka chosen by rascals and provocateurs everywhere. Theirs and ours is a timeless world of intrigue, of story of delicious mischief, of sharp witty retorts, raised eyebrows, red-lipped smirks, secret nods, and mysterious packages. There are people and there are characters. There are events and there are stories. There's fame and there's infamy. There's vodka and there's Smirnoff. So that was the paragraph that really kind of like captured the brand history. And just yeah. the behind the scenes on that, you know, I'd written a strategic version of this, which was like a number of slides, just 10, 15 slides, that really kind of like told the story uh, chapter by chapter. Uh, and we actually called them that. It's like, you know, chapter one, disguised, chapter two, smuggled. And all these things are true that happened in the, uh, in the Smirnoff brand. And then, uh, you know, the uh, creative at the time, Justine, looked at that and then turned that into this amazing piece of writing that really served, served as our North Star um, going forward. And I should just give a, a special shout out to our creative and production team who kind of made this thing happen. It would have been impossible without them, obviously. So it's uh, Dina Hugo as creative directors and Fanny Alana with the team on the project and Ryan Chong as a producer. Uh, those guys were epic on this uh, insane shoot in Budapest and then later weeks and weeks of editing and finishing. So thanks to those guys. So the brand, as from the history of it, from my perspective, uh, it was always, it always had a subtle connection to Russia. And so that's what makes this all work beautifully for me too, is the idea that subverting, you know, subverting the ordinary, that as, as you said earlier, uh, Stephen, the idea of being sort of, subversive sort of mysterious and doing that yeah. in a in a modern way uh, it just i mean it's really the, it's really the brand that's connected with russia that's where it started out right it did so, so i mean the genesis of the brand is in 1864 um that's when um you know the the, the vodka brand smirnoff was first created and then of course you know the russian revolution happened right you know and vodka was nationalized Smirnoff himself, you know, was, I think, three times, maybe five times, you know, put in front of a firing squad. Um, you know, really, really kind <laughs> of scary kind of stuff, you know, uh, and they tried different things. They tried making vinegars, like they kind of tried to diversify kind of their business away from vodka. I mean, it's, it's a remarkable but that, but that story. Whole story. That whole story gives this brand incredible... Uh, it gives it credibility in telling this sort of subversive story and and the mystery behind Precisely. it. I mean, it, mm -hmm. it, it works extraordinarily right. well, um, and it does it in. Uh, my, so my, my my question is this: How did you feel that that would connect with a modern day consumer? Was there an interest in that? There was almost this drama that that comes through in the work too. How did you feel yeah. that it would connect with 
with uh, a, a 26 year old going in to buy a drink somewhere. <laughs> let, well, me, was, let me give yeah. it a shot and then I'll let Tim come in. Mm. You know, I'll, I'll give the kind of client sided things. We were shaking in our boots, um, yeah. Fergus. <laughs> <laughs> um, frankly, you know, and I, I've worked on, you know, I've been lucky to work on like, lots of icon brands like Guinness where people just love St. James's Gate and Arthur Guinness. I mean, it is just, you know, catnip, right? Um, you know, they, they, they love the magic of that. And you can very confidently go to that space, you know, and tell those kind of historic stories. And it is, it, you know, it really, you know, captures people about people's imagination. Um, so we kind of knew, like, in a way, we were like, we have to tell the brand story, you know, because like, it is the truth. It is very, very distinctive. It's infamous, not famous, you know, and it subverts the ordinary, because it's not that typical story of, you know, has been made in a kind of a stone cottage up in the Italian Alps or something like that. And we're like, we've got to tell our story, right? So this bit we knew. However, we really agonized, you know, on the Diageo side, and it's many conversations where, you know, we didn't want it to become a vanity project, you know, where we kind of go, well, we think this is super interesting. But the fear, just like you, you put your pen on, is that your 26-year-old guy, you know, in anywhere in the world, right, you know, from Thailand to whatever, you know, uh, Kenya would go, I'm bored. I don't care, you know. And I think this is where, you know, 72 and Sunny kind of bought their creative magic, you know. So, so on that point, let me hand over to Tim to tell you about the creative magic and how they did that. In that we summarized all that thinking into our creative brief, which was position Smirnoff as the world's most infamous spirit, um, which I think still might be one of my, my uh, kind of proudest briefing moments. <laughs> <laughs> I love that phrase. And uh, as uh, Stephen mentioned, it's really this pivot from we're not just famous, we're infamous, uh, was the, the big strategic pivot. And so um, your question is, is, you're right, it's the million dollar or the multi-million dollar question in this case, which is... Um, you know, how do we tell this story in a modern and compelling way? And we've all got these kind of horror stories of the the brand history ad that um, that people, uh, sorry, the brand history ad that people fail to connect with, but makes the organisation feel good. Yes. And uh, we're like, how do how do we? Yeah. <laughs> and you know, that is actually also a trope in the spirits category, also. So we're kind of very aware of that. So originally, we actually explored two directions creatively um, that we took into research. The first was to more overtly tell the story of history. Sorry, more overtly tell the story of Smirnoff in, in a compelling way. And um, no spoiler alert, that's the work we made. So you'll see that if you've clicked on the videos in, in the links. Um, but we did also explore another route, uh, which was about embodying the spirit of Smirnoff in, uh, in modern day characters and modern day times. And we actually took both into research for that reason. We were all very much big fans of that first route of the work we had that really told the story of Smirnoff because we deep down believed that that's what we needed to do. But um, we did go around the world with actually two campaigns that both off the same strategy, but one that was a kind of a, a more kind of like using modern day characters to kind of reflect the values. What would be an example of a, of a modern day character, just for, so, we, so we understand? What would be an example of that? An example might be kind of, uh, I think one of the things we had actually was, um, you know, uh, a, a well-dressed lady kind of scaling over a, a wall to break into a kind of like a, a, a kind of evening soiree, a party that she kind of clearly wasn't invited to, but kind of breaks in and sneaks in and just kind of has a great time as a result. So, you know, it, it's that kind right. of like infamous behavior and actions that kind of like captured the spirit and the attitude of the brand. 
um, and not necessarily being so overt about the story. Maybe there was a line in there that connected to a fact about the brand, uh, but it, it was it was relatively blind and it was more kind of about the kind of like, this is the attitude of, of the brand and the people that drink it. Um, so we took all that work, those two routes into research. And um, firstly, it was pretty consistent, which is kind of always a, a nice surprise when it happens, especially when you're talking about markets as diverse as, as the UK to Brazil to the US uh, South to South Africa. Tell us about the reactions from the the more uh, from the modern day version to the more historical version. Yeah, we'll start with the modern day version. I mean, both routes were liked, which was encouraging from the beginning. But um, you know, the the preference was definitely for the kind of the brand story version, and I'll explain why for the modern day version. The modern day version, I think, fell into some of the same traps as previous, um, you know, versions of the Smirnoff strategy, even going back to inclusion, which was it was based off a truth that lived on the wall of the agency that wasn't in the work. So when you're watching this brand attitude work, you kind of get that like these characters are mischievous and they're doing something infamous and they they kind of look cool. And this is from Smirnoff, but there's no answer to the question of why. Like, why is Smirnoff telling me that this is the attitude that we should be embodying or that the brand embodies? Why is Smirnoff telling me that it's these kinds of characters it's endorsing? Uh, why is Smirnoff telling these kinds of stories? Um, that, that was kind of really missing for people. It's a bit of a missing link. And, um, you know, obviously we, ro we rotated the kind of the two campaigns in the research and we saw a definite effect of order as well. When people were exposed to the brand story piece first, uh, the brand attitude stuff was liked way more, where if you flipped it the reverse, you know, they didn't really get the brand attitude stuff as well. So that really told us two things. One, that the brand story work was just more compelling. But two, that like, that was a really foundational element that whatever we did, we needed to do that bit first. We needed to tell that brand story and establish that in the minds of people before we went further and tried to kind of capture a kind of purely modern day expression of, of kind of what that brand stands for. And I guess, you know, the, the one that I would add on top of that is we were surprised, you know, mm. by how much people were captivated by this story. And I think it's a tribute to the agency in terms of not making it a history lesson, but kind of taking the excitement and the sense of mischief, which kind of is, again, like something that people just love to this day. Like people love, you know, an entertaining, exciting, interesting kind of story, you know. Um, but yeah, we were very pleasantly surprised, I guess, that the brand story kind of performed ahead you know of of the attitude work we we, we thought mm. it would work the other way around which is kind of back back to your initial question fergus right you know which is you know how do you make a brand story relevant to a younger consumer and we researched kind of two cohorts you know broadly younger and broadly older i would say and it was also very consistent across both groups and sometimes marginally more interesting to the younger consumers you know and remember being in um, uh, Brazil, you know, uh, in Sao Paulo, and we were in the research kind of groups. And I'm just seeing, you know, those kind of consumers in their early 20s going, oh, that's exactly how I think. Yeah, you know, and I remember when Brazil, we had a really tough government and we wanted to rebel and subvert and all that kind of stuff. So it was just really interesting to see that an old story could have such modern yeah. appeal and relevance. I think like that's I think that's a really important point. We actually um, you know did things a little bit backwards on this. I, th I think we did have an insight on the brief at some point, but we definitely uncovered the insight that was really driving the connection to the work through the research process. The idea that taking the expected path leads to a life less ordinary, 
And that's really what's at the core of this. And that's the thing that everybody can connect with, no matter their age or their demographic or their kind of the country or culture that they're from. That felt like something that everyone found aspirational and connected to with them. And it was it was great to actually arrive at that um, through through the process. I think it's a good learning that it's okay if you don't necessarily have the the world's mappiest insight at the beginning of the process if as long as you know kind of spiritually where you're going and you can find it through the work and then maybe crystallize it later i think sometimes to kind of all the planners out there we spend a long time kind of hand wringing over the words that go into that box uh, on the brief and um you know and we should but um you know so, sometimes you find it through the work as well i mean it's worth kind of saying you know that we haven't really had a global campaign on smirnoff probably in 25 years, which I guess mm. might be all the way back to the through the bottle piece, you know, maybe something else I, I can't remember. Um, but for a long time, right? Quarter of a century. And this campaign, you know, what where the agency got to was just so universally liked that it has gone into probably 15 plus markets around the world of on, on every continent, you know, um, uh, you know, from Indonesia to Argentina, you know, uh, US, Canada, uh, Kenya, um, Ireland, UK, Australia, you name it. You know, back to kind of one of the questions you get is said on like trying to crack global campaigns, you know, it is possible, but you need to do it with, with skill, right? You know, yeah. if you if you do, you can do it, you know. So let's talk about how it rolled out. And because there is sort of this idea that we can find something compelling and interesting, but it may not affect or influence our behavior. So given that you wanted to sort of build the story and it, it needed to, it needed to connect in a certain way, did you, did that, did that factor into how you rolled it out? Were there creative phases to this that, yes. that, that, that sort of sliced up the story and rolled it out over time? Yeah, let me, let me kick off and, and Tim can, Tim can add on top. So we actually launched with the brand story first, you know, which was to kind of set the foundations, you know, so reintroducing this idea of Smyrnaf as a subversive brand since 1864. Um, but we also shot at the same time within that, within the kind of production, uh, some drinks kind of assets, you know, uh, which kind of focused on kind of iconic Smyrnaf serves. The red thread between the brand story and what I think the brand story set up was the attitude of the brand. Uh, and I think, you know, almost two years down the line, you know, in the other work and how the campaign has flown into uh, bond um, executions, into Smyrnaf Seltzer executions, is the attitude, you know, and that kind of mischievous, twinkle in the eye, kind of subversive piece. So I think that's how the campaign has developed you know um and how you know and and we kind of feel we're just really in a groove actually now from a creative point of view we know our brand world you know we know our attitude we know our tone of voice so actually from a creative point of view you know we're getting to really awesome kind of creative results really really quickly let's go back to kind of like what actually was was kind of created on that shoot because it was kind of um you know hats off to our creative and production teams because it was a, an epic undertaking not only did we capture the kind of the assets that you see in the brand story film and and the drink films which is the, the um that Stephen mentioned and really the drinks is how we build kind of relevance and connection to the modern day consumer right because that's the bit that you can kind of interact with now today um, there was also thousands and thousands of images that were captured um, behind the scenes as well. So we had a 
a B team on set uh, that kind of like, you know, just spent time with every prop, every actor, every scene. And the um, the kind of the library they captured was kind of like astounding. Uh, I think there's over 2,000 individual assets uh, that were captured. And so that allowed us to really fuel um, not just the kind of the broadcast stuff, but um, a deep library of social assets that were able to either just be used across Instagram or Facebook just as a kind of like as world building. Um, but there was also a kind of an, an Instagram activation that was called the Web of Infamy. Uh, which you can actually, you know, it's a really creative way of telling the brand story and there's clues and codes hidden within each Instagram post, which leads you to another part of the story, which is a, a great way to kind of express the, the story across that platform. Um, so, so they were kind of the assets. And then the rollout, Stephen mentioned launching with the brand story because we knew that that was so important from research as a, as a foundational piece. So that was done, in, you know, both in, in film, broadcast, out of home, and then going into the, the drinks work and then providing that kind of extra deeper experience on Instagram should people kind of want to go down that far with us. So from this, from a campaign like this, do you feel that it has two years? Uh, does it does it sort of run its course in year one? Or do you feel that it can go on for a couple of years in its current interpretation? This campaign has definitely has got years to run for the 21 uh, variant, which is the one that's you know been around for 150 years. It's the one with all the history and heritage, and it's like our our Coke Red is is that version. Um, I think where it gets even more exciting as we think about the future of this campaign is when we think about how does this brown world extend to things like Smirnoff seltzers or um, infusions, which is a, a product that is, is vodka infused with with real fruit, fruit flavors or even to things like zero sugar and stuff like that. And there's lots of things in the works right now that, um, you know, takes this attitude that Stephen was talking about and applies it to these new products. And that's that those creative expressions very much live in the modern day. We still maintain the attitude and that spirit, uh, but it's less of the story of the brand and more about how the brand shows up in the day, in, in today's context. What are the sort of KPIs that you track, Stephen? Let me start with the Diageo KPIs and then I'll hand over to Tim in terms of creative impact because he'll give you a much more expert view. But really, like at the end of the day, you know, we we have a brand uh, tracking uh, system in Diageo which looks at uh, three measures, uh, meaningful, distinctive and salient. Um, so on a kind of an annual basis, we're really tracking, you know, how's the brand performing in terms of those three big measures. Um, so distinctivity and driving a shift in distinctivity, as we mentioned right at the very start, was one of the biggest pieces that we were after. And thankfully, we're seeing those distinctivity scores move up in line with our competitors or indeed ahead of competitors. So that's kind of, I guess, from the brand's point of view. Um, and then, you know, from the business point of view, obviously, you know, we're looking to see, you know, Smirnoff grow share and gain quality market share, you know, as a brand and kind of be healthy and firing on all cylinders, you know, so we monitor that obviously on a monthly basis. Yeah, that's, that's they're probably the biggest things. I, I mentioned the ROI piece, you know, uh, which is we use econometrics, uh, you know, to measure, you know, what is the ROI on particular pieces of creative? And as I mentioned, in the markets where we have access to that kind of complex kind of study, you know, we're, we're, we're very, very pleased kind of with the results, you know, but maybe Tim can talk about kind of the, the actual quant testing that we did and creative kind of the creative impact kind of studies just in terms of the specific copy itself. I think going back to um, 
to kind of the KPIs that we're briefed with at the very beginning of the process, you know, restore sophistication and edge, create a distinctive and notable world and return Smirnoff to growth. There were the top line KPIs um, that we feel like we've kind of achieved, as Seymour was saying, across this campaign. I mean, they show up in things like brand tracking as a distinctiveness and a brand worth paying more for and a brand to be good, good to be seen drinking, those kinds of things. Um, and those the, the, those tracking measures have improved across the majority of our markets. Uh, and then even when we went to like asset level um, kind of pre-testing, we, we saw those kind of measures pop as well. So we kind of um, were pretty robust uh, on the kind of the research and testing side of this process. Obviously, it was a huge pivot for the brand. So you know, that's hence the kind of all the kind of research that went in at the concept level. You know, all the research that went into the kind of the pre-testing uh, and then, of course, measuring the impact in market afterwards. I think, um, you know, with such a kind of so much on the table and such a kind of potentially kind of, um, uh, you know, a strategy that perhaps could lead us to that history lesson thing that we're all scared of. I think uh, Stephen and I both wanted to make sure that we had uh, the belts and braces all in place. Should anything go wrong? Thankfully, it didn't. <laughs> so when did when did the campaign launch? Yeah, so but pretty much kind of across October, November of 2019. Um, so just to put that in perspective, so I joined the brand in October 2018. We presented to the exec in January of 2019. Uh, and they were like, we love us, go for it. And we shot all the assets, the 2000 assets that Tim mentioned in Budapest and Hungary in June. And then we went into our various editing kind of exercises, et cetera. And then it launched, you know, in our major markets across October, November, December of 2019, which would be like a big trading period for us. So we absolutely wanted to be up kind of on air and in market with that campaign. So kind of end to end, a 12 month process. Um, so it was very quick. So I just have two final questions. It will be done in about five minutes, just so you know. I, obviously, what's happened is this pandemic, and nobody anticipated it happening, and you launched prior to it. I'm, I'm just curious. I've got to assume that you had to revisit some of your expectations and KPIs in light of the pandemic. And I'm wondering whether it, it's it certainly had an impact, but I'm wondering um, what sort of an impact do you think it might have had on the effectiveness of the campaign? And you, do you think that it suffered as a result of that? Or you think it actually, it actually um, uh, achieved even greater results of the, of the, of the, due to the pandemic in terms of people's impressions? Yeah, let, let me kind of chip in first. Um, so first of all, like Smirnoff is one of those brands that actually can benefit from a pandemic uh, like that we're experiencing at the moment uh, because it is quite an off-trade brand, you know, so Tim mentioned the on-trade, the off-trade is your, your supermarkets, your grocery, your at-home consumption, right? Um, so so Smyrnaf is structurally advantaged from, from that point of view in that it tends to be more off-trade, you know, or at least 50-50 off-trade, on-trade. So actually we have weathered the storm, I'm glad to say, um, relatively well. Um, so that's kind of the first piece. Uh, but certainly our, our approach is we want to absolutely invest behind our foundation brands. Uh, and we talk about mental availability, physical availability and innovation as kind of three strands of kind of endeavor on all of our big foundation brands. 
Let me talk about mental availability and what we mean by that is the awareness, the salience, the relevance, etc. Uh, and actually, you know, in, in, in from the point of view of this campaign, such as the belief and the confidence, you know, driven by all the results, um, is that markets have invested ahead, which means we're on air, you know, uh, you know, in broadcast, within social digital. I think actually um, we've been able to lean back into the campaign, if that makes sense feel confident about it, that it works, that it will deliver the results. Obviously, you know, in terms of ROI and sales, you know, there are all sorts of factors, you know, nothing to do with advertising that are impacting kind of on that. But it's allowed the business to invest, you know, strongly, you know, in kind of media, you know, in, in all of our key market market battlegrounds. And we firmly believe that is a critical aspect of gaining quality market share as we move to this pandemic. I think, um, you know, the in terms of pivots, I think it's been really interesting how we've managed to, to pivot this kind of brand positioning into a very kind of COVID relevant space. Um, you know, we're thinking about like uh, the experience people are going through right now and kind of what really kind of the role of alcohol is. And of course, like, uh, you know, the people are still wanting to make and mix drinks at home and we're calling it the at-home cocktail revolution. And so we really have this uh, positioning of this thought that Smirnoff brings a mischievous twist to mundane times. And, and really, I think once we get past the kind of like the fear that comes with COVID, what gets that, what gets replaced with that is, is really boredom for many people. And uh, positioning kind of like the brand as someone who can bring some, a little bit of glamour, a little bit of mischief, a little bit of intrigue to, to what really can be kind of a very boring time is the core of our like at-home drinks platform. And, and that work is in the marketplace now. Stephen O'Kelly, uh, SVP Global Brand Director for Smirnoff at Diageo, and Tim Jones, Executive Strategy Director, 72 in sunny New York City. Awesome conversation, guys. Really great. It was so great to have both of you on. And thank you. I originally reached out to Tim, and Tim uh, insisted on having Stephen on, and it was a smart choice. This has been a great conversation. You both are uh, pretty awesome. Great work. Well done. Thank you very much. Thank you. Yeah, I appreciate it. And we'll see everybody on the next episode.